Chapter 12, Part 3 of History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries by S. Cheatham. Chapter 12 Discipline and Life of the Church, Part 3. Donatism was a headstrong and unfortunate attempt to constitute a pure society in the midst of a church too hastily judged impure. This had no enduring effects. But a Puritan movement of another kind had an influence upon the church which was both deep and lasting. When the world and the church were mingled together, the mass of Christians came to be far removed from the eager faith which had enabled the little band of earlier days to endure persecution with steadfastness and even with joy. The multitude led a life influenced no doubt by the commands of Christ, yet not very greatly differing from that of such pagans as truly sought to do their duty according to the light which was given them. Hence there came into prominence a distinction, not altogether unknown in earlier days, between the commands which all men are bound to obey and the counsels of perfection which comparatively few can observe. There are, says Eusebius, within the church two kinds of life. First, that which is above the ordinary social life of man, which admits not of marriage, nor of the possession of property, nor of any superfluity, but devotes itself wholly and entirely to the service of God through the excess of heavenly love. Those who follow this life, guided by the right precepts of true piety and the promptings of a soul cleansed from sin, give themselves good words and works, by which they propitiate the deity and offer sacrifice on behalf of their fellow men. Secondly, there is the lower and more natural life, which permits men to enter into chaste marriage, to attend to the business of the house, to aid those who are carrying on a just war, to engage, so far as religion allows, in farming and merchandise and the other occupations of civil life, giving set seasons to mortification, to instruction, and to hearing the word of God. To this lower stage of Christian life all, Greek or barbarian, are bound to attain. That is, a distinction was drawn between the counsels of perfection which were necessary for the higher life, and the universal precepts which all are bound to observe. Those who attain the former are to the general body of Christians what trained athletes are to those whose bodily powers are not specially developed. To these ascetics, everything that tended to give grace and beauty to the life of man, unless in the actual service of the sanctuary, seemed at best superfluous, probably sinful. Marriage, in particular, was no longer regarded by such teachers as a blessed state, instituted by God in the time of man's innocency, but as a necessary evil, which inevitably brought with it a lowering of the spiritual state and entangled a man in the affairs of this world. It is only permitted to the common herd, they who aspire to the angelic life must neither marry nor be given in marriage. Not content with the rendering their due honor to purity and chastity, with reverencing those who lived in continence for the kingdom of heaven's sake, many teachers represented the great passion which was implanted in man for the continuance of his race as in itself sinful, nay, as the very source and fount of sin. St. Augustine, unconsciously influenced by his early Manichaeism, greatly contributed to diffuse this view of life. When this view of the superior holiness of celibacy came to prevail in the church, it followed almost of course that Christians desired those who were engaged about their most sacred mysteries to be celibate. Early in the fourth century it began to be recommended that the clergy of the three higher orders, if they had wives, should be as though they had none. 
In the great council of Nicaea it was proposed by some of the ascetic party to introduce this practice into the church at large. This was however defeated by Paphnutius, an Egyptian ascetic of high repute, who vehemently entreated the bishops not to lay an intolerable yoke upon the clergy, since honorable is marriage and the bed undefiled. It was sufficient to lay down, according to a custom already ancient, that no man should contract marriage after admission to holy orders. To this the synod assented. The council of Gangra, somewhat later than that of Nicaea, went so far as to anathematize those who refused to receive the Eucharist from a married priest. Still, the general drift of opinion in the church was unfavorable to the marriage of the clergy of the higher orders, and it was generally felt, both by the laity and by the clerics themselves, that the celibacy of the monks gave them a reputation for holiness among the faithful which was disadvantageous to the married clergy. Hence, it came to be the rule in the East that bishops at any rate, if they were married, should live as if they were not. Even to this, however, there were exceptions. Socrates tells us that many bishops in the East had children in lawful wedlock during their episcopate, though most of them voluntarily practiced continence. It seems probable that Gregory of Nazianzus was born after his father became a bishop. Synesius, early in the 5th century, accepted the bishopric of Ptolemaeus only on condition that he should be allowed to retain his wife, which was evidently contrary to the usual rule. In the West a stricter custom prevailed. In 385 the Roman bishop Seresius, stigmatizing in no measured terms the vile passions of the married, enjoined celibacy on bishops, priests, and deacons. Edicts of Innocent I, in the year 405, and of Leo I, in the year 443, enjoined at any rate the strictest continence, which was also prescribed in the canons of numerous councils. It was far, however, from receiving universal obedience. The great church of Milan, claiming the authority of its greatest bishop, St. Ambrose, and bearing the repute of having the best clergy in Italy, was content with the ancient rule which permitted only one marriage to a cleric. When Hildebrand in the eleventh century entered on his reforms, quote, marriage was all but universal among the Lombard clergy, unquote. Even the famous Archbishop Heribert of Milan was married, and, quote, his wedlock neither diminished his power nor barred his canonization, unquote. In the British and Irish churches, the marriage of the clergy seems to have been practiced to a comparatively late date. The civil legislation followed the ecclesiastical, but slowly. Edicts of Constantius and Constance, in the years 353 and 357, expressly exempted from certain exactions the wives and children of the clergy, who are clearly recognized as legitimate. Justinian, by a law of A.D. 528, enacted that no one should be chosen bishop who had children or grandchildren, because the charge of a family tended to distract a man from spiritual things. At a later date, he recognized the ancient exclusion from the priesthood or diaconate of such as had married two wives or a divorced person or a widow. In all this it seems to be admitted that otherwise married men might be admitted to the ranks of the clergy. End of chapter 12, part 3